We're reading from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believer's examples in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing you, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word. Well, today we got our work cut out for us, whereas it took me, uh, I don't know, six messages to get through chapter three of 1 Timothy. We're going to go through chapter four in one message. You're saying, I don't believe you. Well, believe it, brother. We believe it. We're going to dive in this, this morning. And since today is Mother's Day, my mom was in the first hour. They attend the church, their members, and, and uh, I was able to express my gratitude uh, to her. She has been a real encourager in my life. People always wonder, Dave, why do you have such a positive attitude? I say, I was just loved by my mom growing up, I guess. I don't know. Like, uh, I am just so blessed to have had the mother that I had uh, growing up. But the story I'm going to start with, is about my father, okay? So although it's Mother's Day, I'm going to tell you about my, my dad. When we were growing up, uh, I used to think my dad was a bit of a prophet. And uh, I've shared some of this in the past. It was because, like, the first time I remember this and starting to think this way, I was, like, in fifth grade. Because here's what my dad would do. My dad would come to us, call my brother and I, Aaron, who's just a year older. Todd was, you know, eight years older than us at that time, and Andrea was too young, and, and he'd call us into his office, and I remember, like, being in fifth grade, and my, my dad saying, now, now, boys, I just want to make you aware of something. Very soon, you're going to start to, to notice girls in different ways. You're going to start caring about how you smell and how you look when you're in their presence. And we're like, ooh, gross, no, that's never going to happen. And he says, when that happens, like, there is a proper way, like, you know, to have those feelings is part of God's design, but, you know, there's, there's a time and a place for the expression of those things, and, and you know, now's not that time, but I just want to let you know, and I want us to be able to work through those things when they come. We're like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. Fast forward two weeks. Uh, all of a sudden, 
One day I was like, I kind of care how I smell and look around this one girl, you know? And, 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 and there was just this awareness. And then I began thinking, how did he know? Like, you know, is this, you know, was there some like magic that he has? And, and then sure enough, there was this other instance. This was uh, just a few years later. My dad and mom said, you know, as followers of Christ, there are certain things that we value and certain ways we look to live out our faith. And so there are things that we don't want you boys to watch or to, to listen to in this season of your life. When you get older, you'll have to make those choices. But for now, you know, here are the movies, you know, that others may be able to watch, but we don't want you to be subjected to those things. And, uh, and you're going to come across friends sometimes when we're not around. And they're going to encourage you to watch those videos and to do those things. And you're going to have to make a choice. Will you walk in obedience to your parents or not? And when they say, you know, come on, you need this, let me tell you how you should respond. And so he would share that with us. And we're like, okay, what, whatever. Fast forward one week. We're spending the night at a friend's house. And so we're going to, you know, there used to be things called blockbusters. You remember those things, right? You go, you go and you'd actually rent movies. You couldn't just get them streaming. And we go and, and he's like, hey, let's watch this movie. And we're like, oh, you know, our dad doesn't want to do that. He's like, oh, come on, don't worry about it. My parents will run it. They don't, they don't care. I'm like, yeah, but my parents care. You know, what we, we want to obey. And, and, and when that started to happen, do you know what the first thought that came to my mind was? This is exactly what my dad said would happen. And then you know what I was able to do? My brother and I together, we were able to, to respond. And we're like, well, he warned us about it. It was easier to say no because my dad already told us of the challenge that was coming, and he prepared us for how to respond, and, and that time, at least, we, we obeyed, right? And, and we did it. And I used to think that my dad was a genius for this. I, I still think he's smart, but I realized he was just ripping off the Apostle Paul. <laughs> because what we find in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 is the Apostle Paul doing this very thing. 2,000 years before my dad did it, the Apostle Paul was continually going to people like Timothy and people like Titus, who are pastors in the church, and he's saying, here's things that you're going to be presented with in your Christian life. Here's struggles that you're going to have within the life of the church. Here's where they originate, and here's ultimately how you deal with them. And that's what we have here in chapter 4. In chapter 4, the first thing that Paul is addressing here is the reality of false teaching. The reality of false teaching. Chapter 4 is Paul coming back to something that he's addressed in other places already in this letter, but wanting Timothy to recognize that false teaching will be something that he will struggle with as a pastor in the church, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and he wants him to be prepared for it. Look at how verse 1 starts. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. If you're paying close attention, Paul is telling Timothy that there are those who can be a part of the church for a period of time, but then due to the reality of false teachers will fall away from the faith. And at first glance, it would seem like Paul's talking about a day far in the future because he says, in later days, in later times. Now, if you think that he's just talking about a time in the future, you'd be mistaken because when Paul uses that phrase, later times or, or later days, what he's referring to is the time between the ascension of Jesus Christ at his resurrection 
and when Jesus Christ comes again. For New Testament writers, they often talk about the later days or the later times. And whenever they're doing that, they're referring to this time between when Jesus rose from the dead till the time that he returns. So back then, as it is today, we are living in the later days. We're living in the later times. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The author says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. All right, before Christ, God spoke and and did things through the prophets, but now we are in the later days. He has spoken through Christ. We are church in these later days. And what can we expect in the later days? Well, we can expect the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth, but we can also expect false teaching to arise, teaching that would contradict what Christ has taught. And he tells us in verses 1 and 2 the reason why. Why there is error as well as truth. Did you see it? The first source or the first source of false teaching, as we see in verses 1 and 2, He says in verse 1 is deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. The reason for false teachings, Paul spells out right here. He doesn't just say, here's the reality of false teaching. He says, here's the reason for false teaching. Look it. There are forces of evil, forces of darkness that exist in the world. There are angels. There are demons. There are spiritual beings who live in submission to God, and there are those who fell from heaven, who rejected God, who followed Satan, and those forces are at work in the world. The reason for false teaching, Paul says first and foremost, is that there are diabolical forces at work. There are diabolical forces at work in the world. And this shouldn't surprise us, because from the beginning we see the diabolical forces at work go all the way back to the garden. I'm not going to rehearse the whole story. But in those first chapters of Genesis, God makes the world, he makes it good, and yet the serpent comes to tempt Adam and Eve, speaks words that twist God's word to lead Adam and Eve astray from God. From the beginning, The forces of evil are at work to tear down God's good creation. Do you believe that? Do you know that? We're we're modern people, and so sometimes the idea of a spiritual realm, you know, we look at it and we're like, gosh, you know, come on, spiritual beings. You know, that's stuff in the movies. That's Ghostbuster type stuff. But no, the Bible says they exist, and they are trying to undercut God and his plan for his creation. Now, No sooner do I make this point than I want to say that Christians typically fall into one or two um, errors when it comes to the reality of demons and spiritual beings that are against God. The first is this. We give the spiritual forces of darkness too much credit. That there's a demon behind every rock Every sickness, every disease, every struggle, every sin is because the devil made me do it. And the Bible says, yes, the devil is at work and his minions are at work. By the way, you guys know that Satan is not omnipresent. Do you know what I mean by that? Satan can't be in all places at all times. 
So sometimes people are like, well, you know, Satan is at work right here and now. He can't be at all places and at all times. He's not God. Now, other spiritual forces could be at, be at work, but, but Satan isn't always the one. Like, if you think Satan is just, you know, in your life all the time, I think he's got bigger fish to fry. He might be having his minions, though, doing that work. But, but one of the things that we can do is we can make too much of spiritual forces, demons, causing us problems, Listen, they do exist, but we don't want to give them too much credit. The other extreme that we go to is not taking them seriously enough. Not recognizing, as the Bible says, that they are often a source of not just false teaching, but of trial and temptation in our life. And, and so what, what Paul comes and does, what God gives us in his word is this truth. is like recognize that they are out there, recognize they exist, and recognize they want to... They want to take you astray. And so I think that's the balance to this. We don't want to give them more credit than they deserve, but we don't want to not take them seriously as well. So Paul says, listen, there are diabolical forces at work that produce false teaching, that inspire individuals to proclaim that which is contrary or twist the word of God. But also look at verse 2. There's something else that does it. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Another source or a reason for false teaching is simply this. Human beings are sinful. Can I get an amen to that? They, we are in our very nature, apart from the grace of God transforming us and setting us free from sin. We are bound in sin. And what Paul says here, this is important is he talks about the fact that consciences can become seared. The, the Greek word for this is katarizo, which, for, does that word sound familiar, katarizo? We get the English word what? To cauterize. And so what, what Paul is saying is that over time, you and I, if we are not ultimately in Christ, our consciences can come to such a point where they are literally cauterized. The, the flesh, the conscience literally dies. It is no longer sensitive to the leading of the spirit. It becomes twisted and it becomes deformed. Have you ever seen skin when it gets cauterized? That's not the way it's supposed to be. And so sin can do this to the human heart and to the human conscience and can lead people astray. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he talks specifically about two guys that this happens to. In verse 20, it talks about these two guys who got their good conscience distorted and they rejected the faith and their names are Hymenius and Alexander who whom he says, I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. When Paul says here, listen, there's people whose consciences can be seared, can be cauterized, that can be so twisted that they defile what is true. Everybody who heard this letter, they immediately thought of Hymenius and Alexander. They actually knew an example of what it looked like because they saw these two guys live it out. So false teaching exists, Paul says. It's a reality. And the reason for it is because, listen, there are forces of darkness at work, and human beings are sinful. We twist God's good creation, and we mess it up. But he doesn't just end there. He also comes and he tells us very specifically what the false teaching was. Did you see it in verse 3? Like, he doesn't just say, here's false teaching, and here's why it exists. He also says exactly what they were teaching. And I want to break this down for a minute, but let me read it first. He says that they were teaching 
that they forbid marriage, verse 3, and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, fortunately for us, we don't have to guess at exactly what this teaching was or where it came from. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul speaks with even greater specificity about this. You see, one of the things that religious people have struggled with is what do we do with the fact that we are both body and spirit? And the Jewish people were no different. They knew that God had revealed himself as spirit, and they knew God was holy and righteous and perfect. Yet we are also physical, and we also sin. And we have desires that at times can lead us to do unrighteous things. And so Jewish teachers went further than what God's word said, and they began to implement this idea of asceticism, where they taught that through the denial of your physical urges through the abstinence from those things, you could experience a righteousness or, or a holiness that you would not experience otherwise. And because they didn't know what to do with desires, they said, Here, here's the deal. Here was the, the, the teaching in Paul's day. They said, all your physical urges and desires, because they come from the physical self, all of those are evil and are to be rejected. That was the teaching in, in Paul's day. All physical desires, all physical urges are evil and are to be denied. And so when they talk about marriage here, they're not forbidding just marriage. We know from extra biblical records, they're, they're saying that sex was wrong. The desire for sex was ultimately evil, and so you had to abstain from sex. Because back then, sex was, in the Jewish tradition, to only be experienced in the context of what? Marriage. So they say, so you don't get married, you don't have sex, and then there is certain food that you should reject. They knew that if they said you rejected all food, you would die because we need food to live, right? So what they did was they said, well, we see in the Old Testament that Things like pork were ultimately supposed to be rejected. So they said, let's cut out all meats. Vegetables, good. Broccoli, cauliflower, have your way with it. But all meat is ultimately to be rejected. If you do these things, you will be righteous. Because your desire for meat and your desire for sex, those are base things. The body is evil and wicked. God is spirit. So we need to free ourselves from those things. This was asceticism. And, and, and Paul says, as we can see here, this is, a, this is a false teaching. Now, let me just ask the question. Does it feel like this teaching would be very popular today? Uh, don't eat meat and deny yourself sex? How far do you think that will get today? Not very far, right? But we do have a teaching that's the reverse of that coin today. You see, because even today, people don't know what to do with desires. Back then, if you had physical desires that could potentially lead you to disobey God, you just cut it out of your life. Abstinence was the solution to your problem. Today, though, we say something different. The false teaching that exists today and is even embraced by liberal churches is this. Instead of all physical desires being evil, today all physical desires are good. 
and they must be acted upon. Don't abstain. Don't let your desires define you. No, whatever you feel, whatever your body wants, whatever it desires, you need to act upon that. To constrain your desires is evil. It's mentally unhelpful. It, it, it can be destructive to you. Let me show you how it plays out. I mean, you already know this, but this is how this false teaching plays out today. Instead of saying, well, desires are bad, today, because we don't know what to do with desires, we say things like this. Listen, you have a desire for sex. The physical body, I mean, people want, want sex. So, so why can't I have sex whenever and, and with whoever I, I want? You don't want to restrain sex to just simply inside of marriage. I, I mean, if I have a desire for sex, I need to express it. So marriage can be experienced in, in any kind of relationship. On the first date, uh, without even knowing the person, it doesn't matter. You have physical desires, I have physical desires. Why should we restrain those things? They're good. Act upon them. Oh, by the way, if you have a desire for somebody of the same sex sexually, who am I to tell you to, to not act upon that desire to tell you that that desire is bad. Like if you love somebody of, a, of the same sex, that, that's just a desire. It's part of who you are. Don't deny your desire. Act upon it. It's evil to tell somebody no. If you are a man and you feel like you're a man in a woman's body or a woman in a, in a man's body, like don't suppress that desire. Act upon those desires. Are, are, are you following me? This is the teaching of our day. Because we don't know what to do with desires, we say embrace your desires. Live out your desires. Today, you're called evil if you say that desires should ultimately be constrained within a certain context. Paul's day, we don't know what to do with desires, so they're just evil. Today's day, all desires are good. That's the way that you deal with it. Neither of these things is what Paul says is the answer to the question of your desires. This is a false teaching to go into either one of these things. Instead, Paul comes and look at what he says in verse 3. God created marriage and food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be what? Rejected. This is what Paul comes and says in response to the false teaching. He says, here's the truth. Here is the truth that we know as the people of God. Our physical desires, they were created by God. God made you to be a physical being and not just a spiritual one. He made angels who are spiritual. He made you to be, to be physical and to be spiritual. And when he created us, all of us, with our desires, it was considered what? Good. It was considered good. So to deny and to say that physical desires are in and of themselves evil and need to be rejected, that marriage and sex is something ultimately to be rejected, that's not what God's word says. It's part of his created order. It's part of, of the way that he made the world. But we know something else. It's that our physical desires have been impacted by sin. Our desires now there's a problem with it because sometimes our desires, well, they never stop and sometimes they lead us to desire things contrary to the design of God. And so ultimately, what Paul is saying in these verses is that our physical desires 
need to be subjected to the word of God. Do you see that right there? Verse, verse 4, for everything that God has created, nothing is to be rejected. But he goes on and he says very clearly that it's supposed to be, look at verse 5 here, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul is telling us that the false teachers have it wrong. They don't know what to do with desires, so they call them evil. Don't call your desires evil because they're part of God's creation. When my dad talked to me about girls when I was in fifth grade, remember? And I was like, was like uh, what? I'm going to care about girls? He was like, yeah, no, you're going to care about girls one day. Trust me. You're going to have a desire in that arena of your life. He says, but there's a right and proper place and time for those desires to ultimately be expressed. Why would he say that? Because he was subjecting his desires, and he was telling me to subject my desires to the word of God. We can look at our desires and we are able to know, should we act upon those desires? Should we not act upon those desires? If we submit it to the word of God. So food, for instance, the food that we enjoy, we, we are able to, does God say that we can eat it? If God says that we can eat it, we are to enjoy it. If God says we shouldn't, then, then we shouldn't. Sex, it's good, but it should be within the confines of, of marriage. And marriage is, is good. This is what Paul is trying to get them to understand. This frees us in so many ways. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Meaning, if you teach what these guys are teaching, that's a false doctrine. It's not in accordance with the word of God and therefore would be harmful. But if you proclaim what I just told you, that God created our physical selves and our desires, it's been impacted by sin, but when you subject those things to the word of God and prayer, that's ultimately what lets you know how to act on those desires. Well, then... You should enjoy the things that God has made and you should give thanks to God for them. We should have a spirit of thanksgiving for the created things that we get to enjoy the way that God has designed it. But man, if you, if you use the things that God has created outside of his design, don't give thanks for it because it's ultimately to your, your shame. So that's what Paul comes and he says, like, here, here's the false teaching and here's the truth. But then what he does in the rest of this chapter, and this is where I'm going to fly through this, is, is he knows that this isn't the only false teaching that, that Timothy and that you and I will ever have to face. In fact, if we were to write a book that addressed all the false teaching that the church has ever faced throughout history, it would be volume upon volume. And so instead what Paul does, he says, I'm going to give you two things, two things that will help guard you against all false teaching in the future. And that's what we see in the next verses, the protection against false teaching. And so what is the protection against false teaching? How do we protect ourselves? Well, verse 7, he gives us the most obvious and yet profound thing. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. What he is saying here is, avoid it when you see it. If you are aware of a teaching that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that goes contrary to the word of God, avoid it at all costs. Don't play around with it. 
Don't, don't try and, and ultimately, you know, kind of shape it to fit you. He says, just avoid it. Drop it like it's hot. I, when, when I had my girls being little, um, I discovered very early on when they were in their toddler years that a toddler and a puddle of water don't mix. Let me explain what I mean by that. I remember walking with my, my oldest, and she was little, and he came up upon a puddle of water. It was left over by some sprinklers. And I saw the puddle, and I saw her, and she was intrigued by the water, right? You know, she's kind of toddling along. And I said, we're not going uh, to go in the water. And she just kind of looked up at me, you know, and she looked down at the water, and she was like, you know, and I'm just like, how's this going to turn out? You know, we don't go in the water. And then she, she didn't go in the water, but she took her foot and she did the whole tap, tap. And then the most amazing thing happens. I don't know how this is possible. It's two inches of water, but in 30 seconds, it looked like she had gone swimming, right? Because with a toddler in a, in a puddle of water, you can tell them, you know, I want you to avoid it. But I found, you know what's the best thing to do with a toddler in a puddle of water? Just remove them from it. Like, don't even let them get near it. Don't let them think that they can play in it because they're going to give themselves to it. And Paul says, don't think you're any different. If you think you're strong and that you can play around with false teaching or you can say, you know, I like this teacher. I know they're off in this area, but I can embrace this about them. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Avoid it completely. It seems obvious enough, but friends, it is a, a slippery slope. So if you know it's a false teaching, avoid it. But then he comes and in the following verses gives what I think is the most clear indication of the only way that we can really protect ourselves, and that is this. Cultivate your life in Christ. Cultivate your life in Christ. What do I mean by that? I'm going to explain it. But it starts in verse 7. Because right after he says, avoid false teaching, look at what he says. Rather, so avoid false teaching, and then rather, train yourself for godliness. The force of those words is so powerful Paul is using this word here and this imagery for train yourself that was the same word used to describe the place in which athletes in the ancient Olympics would go to train themselves. It's the word that we would eventually get gymnasium from. And so Paul is saying you should take your life in Christ and your pursuit of knowing him and living out your faith as seriously as an Olympic athlete does their training for their events. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is not a life of passivity. It is a life of activity. We are to engage, literally, if I were to, if I were to give a modern translation of this, he says, Rather, engage in spiritual CrossFit. <laughs> engage in spiritual CrossFit. Don't let your life in Christ be stagnant, but pursue Christ. And I'm going to tell you in the two ways that we do it. You see, a lot of Christians have the mindset of Mark Twain. And maybe we don't know it. Do you know what Mark Twain said about exercise? I'm going to tell you. He said, whenever I feel the urge to exercise... I lay down until it goes away. Amen. Yeah. 
Now, Paul is going to say physical training is of some benefit. Do you see that in verse 8? So, so he's, not, he's not saying that you should be so devoted to your spiritual life that you don't take care of your physical self. We are to take care of our physical selves. But too often, we come to Sunday morning and we hear the call to exercise our life in Christ and then we go home knowing that call is placed upon us and we distract ourselves till the feeling goes away. And Paul says, may it never be for you, for me. We are to train ourselves in godliness. And what does it mean to train ourselves in godliness? Godliness in the mind of Paul, as we see in the remaining verses, involves two things. Devoting yourself to knowing the word of God. Because you can't live out a godlike life without knowing who God is. Similarly, you can't live out a godlike life without ultimately putting what you have learned into practice. And those are the two things that we see in the remaining verses that Paul says. He's going to say here, devote yourself, be intentional church, be intentional Timothy. You want to be protected against false teaching. You want to do what is right in the eyes of God. To cultivate your life in Christ, you must give yourself to the word. And you must put into practice what you hear. Look at verses 10 and following. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We toil, he says, and we strive. Command, he says, and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. What you teach, Timothy, live it out. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Give yourself to the Word of God. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, people read that, and they're like, oh, did the elders lay their hands, and then Timothy got the gift of teaching? No, that's not what it's talking about. The gift that Timothy got was to be an elder in the church. We know that because in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about elders and pastors being considered gifts given to the church. And so he's saying, fulfill your role as an elder. Teach and equip. This is what you need. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see your pro- so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. As you hear those verses, do you see the call not to passivity, but to activity in the Christian life? We do not believe that our works save us. The work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, by grace, through faith, is what ultimately brings about our salvation. But when we experience that grace and are set free from sin, 
These verses show us that the Christian life is a life of pressing in further and more deeply into knowing God, into knowing his word, and then ultimately living it out. Timothy was called to preach, to proclaim, and to teach the word of God because that's what we need as his people. And he was called to live it out as an example to them. And Paul told him to do that because he says, this is what is needed to guard the church against false teaching. Now, is this then just simply the responsibility of the elders and pastors of a church? No. He's saying this is what we all need. The church needs to hear and to receive the word. We need to embrace training ourselves in godliness, knowing the word of God, and practicing the word of God, not so that God would love and save us, but as a means of living in the truth. Because here's, did you hear what Paul said is our motivation for this? Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of heaven and hell. If you give yourself over to a teaching that is contrary to the gospel, if you put your hope and set your faith in that thing, that will not lead to your redemption, that will not lead to your salvation, that will lead to your condemnation. And so Paul says, how serious should we be about pursuing knowing the truth and then seeing that truth lived out in our lives? Paul says, Timothy... When you do this, you are not only proclaiming, but you are demonstrating the salvation that is possible through Jesus Christ. And what is the result of that? It's the salvation of souls. It's the salvation of souls. Here's my challenge for us today in light of these things. The false teaching that Paul's talking about here and the false teaching that exists in our day, maybe you don't struggle with those things at all. Maybe it's not something that is readily in your mind. You're like, no, I subject my desires to the word of God. All right, put that to the side for a minute. But how serious are you in taking time and energy in training yourself in godliness? When he says, rather train yourself in godliness, it's not a suggestion it's not like, a, you know, I think this might be beneficial to you. It is beneficial, but it is a call of God upon your life and my life. And it's not just receiving the training and instruction that comes on a Sunday morning. It's you owning your spiritual walk, you owning and cultivating your life in Christ by giving yourself to his word and giving yourself to, to living in it. For verse 10 says this, for to this end we toil and strive. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God. Has he made you alive? Has the gospel come to you and freed you and redeemed you and set you free? Is he, as the rest of the verse says, your savior? If he is, then you and I would want to take seriously this calling and you and I would want to live lives and be diligent in the life of the church to make the truth known as we pursue his word and as we look to live it out. May God help us in that, amen? And here's the great and glorious truth. He promises that he will.
For it's not you and I who work and act, but it is Christ in us. Praise the Lord for that truth. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider what your word first said to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, Lord, it was not just a word for them, it's a word for us. Lord, may we not be so ignorant as to think that people today would take your truth, twist it, distort it, and try and lead others astray. May we not deny the reality of spiritual forces and, and seared consciences that are the cause of these things, but help us to be a people who are quick to identify it and to turn from it and to pursue the righteousness and the life that is ours in Jesus Christ because, Lord, we have our hopes set in you and recognize, Lord, that our life in Christ is something that we are to be trained in and to pursue with a passion and a fervor and that it will be a toil and, and there will be a striving involved, but we don't go at it alone. For as Christ has promised, we have your spirit that lives in us. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who is walking in falsehood, who is believing lies about Christ, who is on that slippery slope to a gospel that does not lead to life, oh Lord, may you speak by your word and your spirit today that they would turn from these things and submit themselves to your word which points to Jesus Christ as the Savior of our souls through the work that he alone can do. And so we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.